promise you Nancy didn't do it. It's not her fault. At least it's not her fault this time. She says it's because of our height difference, and I didn't count on that when we got married. <clears throat> but somehow tweaked it. But uh, we're good to go. Don't need My voice is not in pain, so that's good. Good stuff. Um, <clears throat> you know, the, the text today is kind of a difficult text, and so we had a good time in, in class with it. Next week we'll be uh, looking at Romans 8. If you'd like to come to class at 3 o'clock, we're really excited about it. <clears throat> And uh, doing a really, really having a really good time. But Romans seven is a little bit, a little bit tough. So, uh, but it has a great message, an amazing message. And so, uh, if you take it, if you look at the bigger picture of what's going on, uh, the message really comes through uh, loud and clear. So, uh, the title of the message today is Two Husbands." And so we'll get to we'll get to why it's it, it's entitled that. But we're going to read this first. I'm just going to read the difficult part of Romans 7, and we'll talk about some of the other verses as we go through it and make some points. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I don't understand my own actions. I don't do what I want. The very thing I hate is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it's no longer I am who, who am doing it, but it's sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I hope, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I don't do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do is what I keep on doing. Now if I do not do what I want, it's no longer I who do it. But it's sin that dwells within me. Uh, one of the things we we need to learn, I think, to understand. I don't know if I have this one up here. Let me see. Um, I'm going to get to that, but let me read this verse to you. What what we find here, and, and later later after these verses, the Apostle Paul will say, you know, such a miserable existence I have here, uh, and maybe you found yourself doing that. I'm sure you have. I've found myself in this position. You know, the thing I want to do, I don't do enough of that. And the things I'm trying to avoid, that, that ends up being what I end up doing. And it, it, it tears my heart out because I want my heart to be given to God. And yet I find in my body I'm doing things that aren't pleasing to God or I'm not doing enough of the good things that he wants me to do. And so that internal battle, and Paul will uh, right after this say, what a wretched man I am. How wretched, how frustrated. How can, I, how can I overcome this? And he does, you know, how can I, who will deliver me from this? Now notice the contrast back in Romans 5. A real big contrast to that expression, what a wretched man I am. Romans 5 verse 1. He says, therefore, since we've been justified... Since we have a relationship with God by faith, since we're forgiven in Jesus Christ by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look, look at that contrast. Romans 7, what a wretched man I am. Romans 5, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. I've got forgiveness. I'm at peace with God. Such a contrast. Peace with God in Romans 5.1. Romans 7, he's describing what a wretched man he is. And so let's begin a quick journey of 
recalling some of the things he said. In Romans 5, verses 12 through 21, he talks about two men. There are two men that we all identify with. And the first one is Adam. Adam is the one who came into the world and is the representor of sin. Adam sinned. And because we all sinned like Adam, or we all sinned just as Adam sinned, Adam died, we died. So sin and death brought by Adam passed to all of us because we all sinned. But later in that section of chapter 5, it says, but the free gift, Jesus is different than Adam. Jesus also had one act. Adam's act was an act of sin. It brought condemnation and death. But Jesus' one act brought grace and a free gift for all men. And that's what it says in verse 16. That one act of Adam condemns, brings condemnation to all men before God. But that one act of Jesus' obedience brings justification, brings a relationship, a forgiven relationship to God, to all men. Because of our identification with Adam, death reigns in all of us. We're all going to die physically. But because of our relationship with Jesus Christ, we have life, which is available to everybody. Adam brings death. Jesus Christ brings life. Because of Adam's disobedience, everybody became a sinner. But because of Jesus' obedience, by one act of righteousness and obedience, all can be made righteous. And then in verse 20 of chapter 5, Where the law increased, sin increased. Now the law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace increased even more. (laughs) Amen. And so that's kind of the prelude to chapter 6. Because then in chapter 6, the obvious question is, okay, God's grace increases, abounds more than the sin that we came through Adam Wow, I could just kind of do anything I want then, right? So that's one way of viewing sin. How do we how do we deal with sin? Adam brought it into the world. We copied it. We became condemned. We became alienated from God. But Jesus Christ, the free gift, came into the world. And through his act of obedience, we're all able to be made righteous. Two men. Two men in Romans 5. Two views of sin. So how do we view sin? Romans 6 starts this way. What should we say then? Shall we just continue in sin that God's grace may just continue abounding? That's a modern day hedonist. A hedonist is the person who loves pleasure and involves himself in all kinds of sin because he's seeking the pleasure. And there are probably many Christians, or at least people who say they are Christians, who go to a church, uh, but they continue to live in pleasure, continue to violate God's principles and truths in many ways. And so trying to have the free gift, but really continuing to live in disobedience to God. Two views of sin. How do we deal with it? Just continue in it and watch God's grace abound? Paul says, of course not. Don't you know 
that we who died to sin, Romans 6, 2, how can we still live in it? This is what uh, Scott preached last week. We've got we to gotta be crucified. Remember, we're crucified to sin. Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We have been crucified with Christ. And so that's why when we, we were baptized into his death, we ourselves were dying. We ourselves were saying, I'm dying to sin. And we ourselves with Christ were joining in that death. And just as he was buried in, in a tomb, we're being buried in water. And just as he came out of the tomb, we're coming out of the tomb of water to live a new life. And so there are two views of sin. One way, one view of sin is just to keep on practicing it like the hedonist and God will cover it. That's, that's not going to happen, by the way. God's not going to cover sin on, that, on those terms. And the other way to deal with sin is to die with Jesus Christ and die to sin. And when you die with Jesus Christ and die to sin, because of your faith in Jesus Christ, God covers your sin. And he raises you to walk in a new life. And so we walk as resurrected people. We walk around as as people who are now raised to, to find and explore what God wants us to do in this new life. That's just a wonderful, wonderful thing. Verse 17 says of Romans 6, Thanks be to God that though you were servants of sin, you have obeyed from your heart that standard of teaching, the gospel, the plan to which you were committed. You've obeyed from the heart. A heart that has obeyed God been baptized into Christ by faith, there's no way that that heart and that person can get up and say, "Eh, if I sin, God will just cover it. That heart is too given to the one who loved us. That heart is is bent on serving the one who has has loved us. With that in mind, I want us to remember, right now you can find your your cracker and your little cup there, and we're going to share the Lord's Supper right now. And, you know, the song we sang... The heart of worship. The heart of worship. The heart of worship is exactly what we just read. That we have obeyed that form of doctrine that was delivered us. We've obeyed it from the heart. We've died with Christ. These two things that we do that seem to be sort of a custom, being baptized, taking the Lord's Supper, things that we do, regularly we encourage all people all believers who are committed to christ and his lordship to be baptized as soon as possible and receive the merits of christ's death for them to be buried to be died buried and raised with with them but also this custom that we have the lord's supper which we do in the communion on every first day of the week is to remember that jesus died for us and that's what the bread represents his body that he lived and, and came and he died for us And the fruit of the vine, the liquid, the grape juice reminds us of the blood of Jesus. That that blood is what secures 
our forgiveness. Not our own blood. His blood. I don't have to pay with my own life. He paid with his own life. So let's just take a minute to eat the bread and drink the juice and remember Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. sin then or continue in it and watch grace abound the modern hedonist the other is remember that you have died to it so now live to God and through this communion through our baptism whenever that was however long ago that was we declare those two things we declare that we're dead to sin we're alive to God and we're alive to being servants of righteousness which is the next duo which we see in, in Romans, Romans 6, uh, there's two views of sin in the way we serve. We read this text that we were once slaves of sin. We've been obedient from the heart to, to that teaching that we received. And because of that, we are raised to live a new life. And now we're alive to God. One of the parts of motive, one of the things that motivates us to live for God is to look at the outcome and so in, in Romans six nineteen it says, I'm speaking to you in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So there's two kinds of servants. One servant who says things like, you know, I'm just going to stand and let great God's grace increase. Actually ends up serving sin. What, is his, what does his sin do? Eventually it leads him even to more, more sin, and the resulting thing is death, separation from God. But the other servant, the servant of righteousness, because his heart's given to God, realizes the finality of things. And so this person says, I'm dying to sin. From now on, I'm going to be a servant of God, a servant of Jesus Christ. And that leads to more and more and more sanctification. We battle. We all battle. I have weaknesses. We all have weaknesses of things that in our flesh, our flesh causes us to stumble. We battle a bit against habits, things that we know we shouldn't do. But the more that we remember that we have died to sin, as the apostle is calling these uh, followers of Christ do. Remember, you died to sin. That's your solution. That's the solution because your heart is given, reminded that it's given to God to be a servant of righteousness, which leads to more and more what? Holiness. More and more sanctification is what that means. More and more being set apart and serving God. 
And so we have the two men, Adam and Christ. We have the two ways of dealing with sin, just not worrying about it, let it increase. And the other one is, remember, you're dead to it. And we have two kinds of servants. And now there's another duo, two husbands. This is what we're really talking about today, two husbands. So it's interesting that it starts out with this text. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So, if you don't like the laws where you live, what can you do to get out of them? Just die. Just die. Notice the next, uh, the next. he's going to set up an illustration here. A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So how does she get out of her marriage? I know what you guys are thinking. Can be forgiven for murder. David was forgiven for murder. It wasn't counted to his account, Romans 4. I'm not saying go out and murder your husband. This is an illustration that they are obligated under the marriage covenant to fidelity to each other as long as they are within that marriage. But guess what? The text really, even though it looks like he's teaching about marriage, he's not teaching about marriage. He's making a bigger point. The point is, we all conceive ourselves as being married to God's law. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. The law of the Lord is eternal. His word shall never pass away. Jesus said it. The law will not pass away, Romans, or Matthew 5. But then he added this phrase. Until all is fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law. You and I never could. And so the law has become a burden to us. Let me give you some examples of the law being a burden to us. When I was a teenager and my mom moved here with we three boy, or four boys, uh, me and my three brothers, we lived just west of of Clinton on miles, about four houses west of, of Clinton. And we did every crazy thing you can think about. And when we got old enough and bought our motorcycles, we rode our motorcycles all over the place. I confess, I rode my motorcycle on the street sometimes before I got a license. Uh, that wasn't a good thing. Not too much, but I did. But at our house, my brother had an El Camino that we carried our motorcycles around in. It's a car that looks like a truck. If you remember what those were? And uh, we parked, you know, it would break down, and, and he'd work on it in the front yard, park it out in the front yard, whatever. Uh, oil, oil stains everywhere, you know, in the street driveway because we were always rebuilding stuff. We were able to do that because there was no HOA. So my wife and I live in a community with an HOA. And we've lived in other communities with HOA. My grandkids cannot even, in one HOA, my grandkid left a bicycle in the front yard the next, next morning. I got a warning. It'll be $25 next time that happens. A bicycle in the front yard. I read yesterday of an HOA that the person was asking, can I park a pickup in my, in my driveway, my own driveway that I own, even though the HOA prohibits it? And the answer is no, you may not. So how can you quit sinning against the HOA? Move back to Miles Avenue. 
How many of you like to go to Mexico from time? I know there's some of you that are scared. You think you're going to die if you go to Mexico. But some of you like, some of you like to go to Mexico, and I like it too. I'm going to tell you why you like going. Because there's an, an avenue like Washington here. How many lanes does it have here? Two lanes? or I don't remember. Is it two? Three lanes. Okay. In Mexicali, how many lanes is that? That's like six or eight. It's as many as you want it to be. If, if, they're, if they're marked or not marked, that area, that space is good for five or six cars. If you need that space, you can use it. And that's okay in Mexico, at least where I've lived. In Mexico, where I've lived, if you are in the far left side of an avenue and you need to make a right turn and you got to do it now, you can do it right now. You can just do that. You could take, you know, what would be two or three or four lanes and just do it. And, and if you get away with it, people are applauding you. That was a cool move. That was great. Because laws are different. You can, if you want to have birria, you guys know what birria tacos are? Who likes birria tacos? Okay. If you want birria tacos in Mexico, you can bring the goat home, raise it in your backyard. And then you can sacrifice it whenever you want. You can dig a hole. You can cook it in the ground all night. And the next morning, you can invite all your neighbors and that party can go on all day, afternoon, into the evening, play music as loud as you want. Nobody's going to complain. They're going to join in the party. That's why those of us who visit Mexico from time to time like to go. People are not down your back about everything you want to do. There's more freedom. Now, I know there's some negative sides too, but there's a lot of freedom. If you... If you want to quit sinning against the law, you have to get out from under the law. Jesus Christ got us out from under God's law by fulfilling it perfectly. That means you don't have to. That doesn't mean you should just give up on God's law and give up on his instructions. But it does mean you don't need to be a perfectionist. And that's what Romans 7 is about. You don't need to be a perfectionist. And so he says in this Romans 7, 4, Likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law. You don't have to be a perfectionist anymore according to God's law. And you've died to the law through the body of Christ so that you can belong to another husband, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that you can bring Fruit for God. You don't bring much fruit to God when you're worried about, did I do, do enough? Have I, have I done enough good stuff to make up for all my mistakes? Have I covered it? Am, can I do more to make sure I hope, hopefully get into heaven? Can I do enough? Can I be good enough? Can I be a good enough husband? Can I be a good enough disciple? Can I win enough people to Christ? Can I do enough of those things? And all of those things are wonderful, but that's a very legal approach to God. And it will leave you exclaiming, wretched man that I am. Who will free me from this body of sin and death? And the answer is, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, who already did all that. And so the reason he has this illustration about a woman and, a, and her husband, and that she can't have another husband until that one's gone. The reason he says that is because the application is 
that we were like that. We were married to the law. We were married to perfectionism. We were married to trying to keep the law as well as we could. And we depended on our salvation. Hopefully God will save me if I'm good enough. And we're never going to be good enough. I shared with class that I used to install moldings in houses. I didn't share them. I shared a baseboard example with them. I'm going to share a crown molding with you. Let's imagine all of this has got sheetrock on it, and it's not a beautiful wood ceiling like this. And let's imagine we want to put a, a crown molding that's, you know, a foot high all the way around. So I used to do that, and I was doing it in one house. And by the way, I'm not going to do it for anybody else, so don't ask. Okay, But I'm not even going to do it in my own house because it makes my back hurt. But I was doing it for a friend here in, in, uh, in La Quinta, a couple of years ago, and we were installing some 8 or 10-inch crown molding in his house. But it wasn't MDF. MDF is flexible. It stands for medium-density fiberboard, and it's kind of like, you know, compressed cardboard. Uh, but it holds a shape, and it works pretty good as long as you don't get it wet. This was going to be stainable maple. Imagine stainable maple, 8 inches, 9 inches tall, that thick. Maple is really, really hard. And so you want it to be really straight. And so I bought my maple. I did all of the staining in my garage, took it over to my friend's house. We did, a, I don't know, a couple hundred feet of crown molding of maple, stained maple around his, his living, dining uh, area, entry area. But I got it to the section over the stove, an eight-foot section with the wall on either side. And I started installing from right to left. And when I got about a foot and a half from the next wall on this side, there was a huge gap. Maple wood does not bend. And it was about a seven-eighths to an inch gap. And there was no way I could push that maple molding up into that gap. So I had to figure out how to fix it, which I did. It took me a whole day to do that eight feet of crown molding. But I figured it out. My point is this. When you tell God, I want you to look at how good I am by my performance, it's like getting a piece of perfectly straight maple baseboard or crown molding and laying it up against your life. And in some places it'll look pretty good. But then you'll get to a spot where there's this huge gap. That's your flesh. That's your sin. And that's why you have to die to being perfect according to the law. You've just got to accept the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Because the law is like a piece of straight hardwood. It's not going to bend. It'll show you when you're doing pretty good with God. It'll show all your errors too. Let me give you another illustration since I used to paint houses. I'm not going to paint your house, okay? That's why I'm doing other kinds of labor now. But in painting, the secret, because paints, unless you use a dead flat, which I wouldn't recommend because your grandkids, your kids, guests are going to come over to your house. They're going to put their hands on the walls. Then you've got to repaint the wall. So you use something with a sheen. So the, there's an eggshell. Eggshell is not a color. It's a sheen. It's a very low sheen paint. There's low sheen. There's another one above eggshell. I forget what it is. Then there's semi-gloss. What's satin? Satin's been, there you go. I've been out of it too long. That's good stuff that I forgot that. So here's the problem. If you start in the middle of the wall with the paint that has sheen on it, and, those, and then you, and you start going out, as you go out, the, paint, the circle of paint will get so big 
that the edges will dry before you get back to it. And a paint that once the edges dry and you overlap an edge and you have any sheen to your paint at all, you will see that once you're finished painting. That's why if I go into your house and look, I can tell, okay, yeah, got some flashing there. It's called flashing. It's not a different color. It's just that the glossiness of the paint overlapped dry paint, and now you see where it overlapped. So the only way to solve that is to move a wet edge of paint across your wall. Get someone who knows how to cut in the trim, and you come with a roller behind them, start on the left side, and just start rolling to the right. Push the wet edge to the right. If someone comes and knocks on the door, ignore it. Because you got to keep that wet edge moving to the right. If someone calls you on the phone and wants to give you, you know, some great gift certificate, ignore it. Because you got to keep the wet edge moving to the right until you finish that wall. And it's, the best thing to do is to put a really powerful shop light or work with the natural light that's coming through the window. I use a 1,000-watt shop light, and I keep it to my left. So I can always look back and see, did I, did I get it covered? Is the wet edge still moving? Did I leave any holidays? The holidays where you, for, you forget your paint doesn't penetrate. Any holidays there? You've got to pick them up before the paint dries. Once it dries, if you go back and paint over where there's a holiday, it'll flash. And I'll come into your house and say, look, your paint flashed right there. And then when you're done painting it, if you're doing it for a customer... You turn off the 1,000-watt work light, and you turn on the 40-watt ceiling bulb, and you show them the room with the 40-watt bulb. And you say, look what a beautiful paint job this is. And they'll say, yes, that's wonderful. But you don't take a 1,000-watt bulb and shine it on the wall. A 1,000-watt bulb will show all the errors, all the place you missed. The law is like a 1,000-watt bulb. If I take a 1,000 watts of light and shine it on any of your walls in your houses, probably wouldn't even need that. I could point out little errors that were made, but don't worry, I'm not going to do that. I don't like doing that. Just invite me over. Invite Nancy and I over. We want to come over. That's fine. We won't look at your paint. The law is unforgiving. It's like a bright light showing errors on a painted wall. It's like a piece of baseboard showing where the wall actually bends and curves, comes in and out. Can't be justified by the law. But isn't it wonderful that God doesn't want us to be justified by our perfectionism? He just wants us to accept Jesus Christ and that our faith be obedient through Jesus. I'm going to finish with this story. A man and a woman fell in love in college. By the way, do we have a, what do we have after this? Are you singing or am I praying or what am I doing? Okay. okay, that's awesome. A man and woman fell in love in college. They dreamed of getting married after finishing their bachelor degrees. They dreamed of a home where they would have a room for each of their children, their little boy and their little girl. They married after graduation and enjoyed a nice honeymoon before, they started, before he started law school. To make things work smoothly, they wrote down expectations and shared them so that the needs of each would be met. She wanted to keep going on dates, keep the romance alive, and to visit her family from time to time. His list 
contained a statement about the importance of having breakfast ready each morning so he could go off to law school every day ready to learn. Also have his clothes clean and ready for all his appointments. So they made their lists. They exchanged them. And his list was longer than hers. At first, meeting each other's expectations seemed delightful, but it wasn't long before the burdens came. He finished law school, and she was now with child. Sometimes morning sickness made it hard for her to help him get off to work. After the children were born, it was nearly impossible for her to keep the house clean so he could bring clients home for dinner. And it was just too much to leave the kids with a sitter, get all made up, and join him and his colleagues at the evening for an evening of entertainment at the club. Fulfilling all his expectations left her constantly exhausted and feeling like she just wasn't a very good wife. A few years later, her husband suddenly died. The funeral came and went. She managed to finish raising the children and get them off to college. And when the time was right, she found herself in love again with a man named Jesse. Jesse was, had accepted employment with the company a year before where she worked. He was full of grace and love. He regularly pointed out her virtues. Sometimes he would surprise her by sending love notes or flowers to her office. In front of her colleagues, she acted embarrassed, but she secretly desired and delighted in those expressions of love. Their love blossomed, and she and Jesse were married. Each new day brought new opportunities to enjoy each other's presence. They delighted in creating new ways to serve each other. Their hearts were full of gratitude and joy. One day she went up to the attic to look for the pictures of her children because her children were home for college and they wanted to show their college friends their pictures. Amidst the photos, amidst the photos she found an old list, a curled up and brown piece of paper on the edges, but it was still legible. It was the list of expectations her first husband had written. So many years had passed since they were married. Have breakfast ready by 6.45. Have the house clean before I get home. Make sure my clothes are cleaned and pressed. Take good care of the kids. Have dinner ready at 6. Be ready to join me for dinner at the club when it's possible for work dates. At first, the list brought back many feelings of burden and despair. How hard it was to be a good wife in my relationship to my first husband, she thought. Then suddenly she was overwhelmed with a warm feeling of joy. All of these things on the list. She was doing all of these same things for Jesse and even more. Loving Jesse felt so different. Serving him was a joy. She was doing all the things on the list, but Jesse, but with Jesse, there was no list. She simply served him because she loved him so much. Jesse was so kind and considerate. He doted on her. He honored her privately and in public. He was always making little sacrifices for her to show his love uh, and, and kindness to her. She realized how much she loved Jesse because he was full of love and grace. Her Jesse is our Jesus. Romans 7 is about stopping your attempts to earn God's acceptance through being good enough. That'll just make you wretched and miserable because you're not. You can't keep the rules well enough. It's impossible. You're not able. But Jesus is able. He did keep the rules. And as he eliminated your need to keep them perfectly, he just wants you to acknowledge his love 
respond to it, and he wants a relationship with you. So, uh, Roy, if you could come on up. I would just want you to think about this as Roy comes up and whoever's going to join him. Um, God doesn't want you to keep the rules. He does want you to keep the rules. But he doesn't want that kind of relationship with you. It's not about rules. It's about a loving relationship. Nancy and I actually did this, made a list. I don't think the list is around. (laughs) I hope the list is not around anymore. I don't know where it would be. But Nancy and I don't need a list for each other. We just need, because we love each other so much out of our heart, we don't need a list to tell us what to do. We just need, need an expression. Here's what I would like you to do. If she says something like that, believe me, I am all over it. Because our relationship is based on love, not on law. We've given each other our hearts and our marriage. So there's two husbands. The husband which was the law and the husband which is Jesus Christ. Romans 7 says, let Jesus be your sacrifice. Die with him. Be married to him. Have a relationship with God by by loving and, and being married to Jesus Christ. God bless you.